morning, church. Praise God for the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and uh, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So do me a favor. I'm going to transition. My name is Pastor Sean. We're going to transition right in our sermon here this morning. Thank you, worship team. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and we started a series last week called Authentic. If you're prepping for your small group, take out your note sheet, okay? Follow along with me. It's a great way to prepare for your small group. If you're not in a small group, it's not too late. We would love for you to take this six-week journey with us uh, through this series called Authentic. And, and I kind of seized on this title because at our, at our church... Um, we our, our vision statement is to develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ. So I wanted to spend some time on the word authentic this fall and talk about, man, what is it that we're after? What does it mean to be authentic? And so last week, uh, and this series kind of builds on itself, okay? So last week, we spent the whole week talking about the broken design of creation. And, and I left with a heavy heart. You probably left with a heavy heart. And I reminded you, man, listen, we got really good news coming this week. And, and, uh, but in order to give the good news, I feel like I got to give just a little bit of a reminder of last week. Okay. So, um, I don't know if you've ever, uh, seen, uh, something to go, man, that was a complete annihilation. You know, that was a complete blowout, if you will. I, I, I remember, uh, years ago, my son, uh, he was probably eight, maybe seven or eight. And he went to a, a, a soccer camp, that was led by professional soccer players. There was about a half a dozen professional soccer players, and there was about 150 to 200 kids at this camp. And, uh, and so day one was Monday, and these players set the expectation that for these kids that, that at the end of the week, these kids were going to play a game against the six professional athletes, okay? So, uh, so the kids were excited, and it was kind of their, uh, their way of doing discipline, because they told the kids, if you're not good throughout the week, you don't listen to your counselor, you know, you won't get to play in the big game at the end of the week. That was day number one. Day number two, they told these 200 kids, if you win the big game at the end of the week, okay, against the six athletes, 200 kids versus six. He said, if you win that game, we are going to outfit you in full uniform and sweat uniforms of the professional team, the Charlotte Eagles. And these 200 kids are like, yeah, man, we're going to win, you know. And then day three, they told these kids that if they win the game on, on, on Friday, that they were going to get iPads. Every single one of them were going to get. And they just built, Thursday, the prizes got even better. And so these kids on Friday morning, man, they were fired up to play these six professional athletes. Three men, three women playing professional soccer against 200 kids. Well, the time came for the big game, and these 200 kids run on the field, and the six athletes get on the other side of the field. And I'm sitting there like, you know, I know they're good, but that's a lot of kids out there. You know I mean? They were just everywhere. And I'm like, there is no possible way that these athletes, these kids are going to score a couple goals. You know, this might be close. And so the athletes, the professional athletes rolled the ball to the 200 kids and they owned the, the soccer ball for about three seconds. Okay. And then after that, these six players with kids everywhere completely annihilated these 200 kids, you know? And, and so what was really cool to watch was after the first goal, about 100 of the kids were disinterested. After the second goal, you know, and I'm t like, like the ball never touched the ground. I mean, the kids never even got a foot on it. After the second goal, there's only about 10 kids left, my kid being one of them that was really trying. You know, it was just, it was obvious this was going to be an annihilation, you know, not even close. 
And we talked about last week the brokenness and the fall of man. And in order to set up the importance of the second Adam, you have to know that the, uh, the concept of death is the complete victor over mankind. Like, it's not even close. Like, it's an annihilation. The, the concept of death that every person, every single one of us does not get out of this thing alive. The victor is sure. The victor is death itself. And last week we talked about being authentic and we talked about what that means. And we rem- I'm reminded that God in his original design, he created us for authenticity, but with brokenness and with sin, death entered the world. And at that moment, death is the complete victor. In fact, we use the word mortal. The word mortal means to be subject to death. And every single one of us is subject to death. In fact, we, we don't even like to discuss the word. We don't, I, you know, when the pastor talks too long about it, we get uncomfortable. We don't like to go to hospitals, you know. Most people don't even like to visit the hospital because it just, it just reeks of mortality, doesn't it? I mean, we don't like to go to old folks' homes and, you know, we certainly don't like to go to graveyards. I mean, everything about it. And I think deep in our souls, like, like we know that this thing called death is not as God originally intended. Even if you go to a funeral of a senior adult, there's a sense in which this is not the way things are supposed to be. You go to a funeral and, and you know, there's the beautiful casket and, and we put a lot of makeup on the person and we try to make them look good. But at the end of the day, death has the victory over that person. And we're going to plant their body in the ground. And this is all because of the sin of the first Adam. Adam brought sin into the world. And Paul, in Romans chapter 5, reminds us of this reign of terror of death itself. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. The apostle Paul writes this. He says, when Adam sinned, sinned, sin entered the world. And Adam's sin brought something. What did it bring? It brought death. So death spread to who? Some people? No, everyone. And and for everyone is sin. Now, a couple important truths that we have to understand before we get to the importance of the second Adam is sin entered through the first Adam. And and it's kind of the the theological word is federal headship, okay? Adam represented all the human race. Adam was the only one with free choice. The rest of us have been in bondage to sin since the person of the first Adam. All of us are in bondage. What that means is every every part of our being is in rebellion to God and his holiness and his righteousness. We choose to do the opposite of righteousness. And Paul goes on to talk about the progression, or maybe the better word is the digression of what happens since sin entered the world. Sin enters the world and death follows sin, right? Death entered the world through sin. In fact, Paul declares in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, a lot of y'all probably memorize this verse, for the wages of sin is what? Is death, right? And by the way, what's a wage, right? I remember... um, 
I don't know if I'll use this story next service because my dad's coming, okay? But when I was a kid, you know, uh, when I was a kid, I remember the first job I had. I remember this distinctly. I came home from the job, and my dad said, son, what are your wages, right? We don't, like, use that term anymore, but he asked me, what are my wages? It was probably minimum wage, right? And, and, uh, and so what's a wage? A wage is something you earn, and Paul's very clear. Your sin has earned you something. You're born into sin, but we are all under the kind of the federal headship of Adam. We're born into sin, we're in bondage to sin, and Paul says your sin has earned you something. It's earned you death. And so death enters the world, and, and, the, and the, the planet, the planet that we live on, is, it's got the pockmarks of gravesides everywhere. It's an annihilation. It's not even close. Death has the victory. And so the digression continues. Paul says sin spread to all. Like death makes it obvious. Mortality is the trump card. Anyone, by the way, if you're, there are a lot of people theologically that think that, that people can, can be good, right? You can be good enough that you're not, not born in sin, you, you do sin, right? And I, my, my answer to that, well, death is the, is the trump card to that, right? If, if that was the case, then somebody would get through this thing and still live. We don't live because we're born into sin, and sin, and, the, and the, the digression here is very, very clear. Sin spread to all, and death shows us that that's the result, that's the wage of sin. And so Paul reminds, even history itself proves that death reigns supreme. Death reigns over everything. Romans chapter 5, verse 13 Paul says, yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. So let me stop here for a minute and give you a little context. You got to understand this verse in context. Remember Paul here, and we went over this letter last, not this past summer, but summer a year ago. Paul here is writing that this church in Rome, this church in Rome is filled with Jewish believers and Gentile believers, okay? And so, and so the Jewish believers, as, as Paul, he's anticipating their questions and they're going to say, well, wait a minute, I thought sin was a result of the law of Moses. I mean, what about all the people that live from Adam to Moses? And Paul's answering that question. He says, no, you're not understanding. It's not about the rules of God. It's not about the Ten Commandments that people did or didn't keep. It's the federal headship of, of Adam. And because they're born into Adam, they're born into sin. And because they're born into sin, the wages of sin is death. He says, because everyone, verse 14, still everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Even those who did not disobey an explicit command of God as Adam did. The, uh, now Adam is the symbol, the representation of Christ who was yet to come. Here's what he's saying. The first Adam brought brokenness. The first Adam brought a reign of terror. The first Adam brought sin. The first Adam brought death. The first Adam spread death to all mankind. The first Adam fractured history so that man cannot escape the wage of sin. And for a week and a half now, we have painted a pretty bleak picture, haven't we? We've, we've painted a horrible picture. It's opposite of as the author intended. It's no longer authentic. Authentic is no longer the norm. We're not, we're not naturally authentic, right? It, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God comes up, he says, Adam, where are you? Why are you hiding, Adam? Why are you in shame, Adam? 
It's why you and I, we can't hope in this world. And some of you are here this morning, maybe you're investigating Christianity. Maybe you're investigating Christ. I want to encourage you with this the, uh, and challenge you with it. The more you hope in this world, the more you will be left wanting because everything about this world is broken and decaying and dying. Everything. It's a mess. And that's why, you know, we need a savior because the more we hope in this world, the more we are left wanting. It doesn't matter how successful you are. It doesn't matter how much money you earn. It doesn't matter if you're the greatest father on earth. Death gets the victory and you're going to pass it all on to someone else. Death wins. (laughs) And we've talked about that for a week and a half now. But if you remember last week, I said in Genesis 3.15, there was a, a little bit of hope. God injected a little bit of hope. And he, we're going to unpack that little bit of hope because God gave his indescribable gift in the second Adam. The second Adam is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I told you last week, if you go a couple weeks ago, if you come to Coastal, you're going to hear Jesus, 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 Jesus a whole lot. Why? Because he's our savior. He's our hope. He's our second Adam. Check this out in Romans chapter 5, verse 15. But there is a great difference, Paul writes, between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even, uh, but even greater is God's wonderful grace. Circle that. And his gift of forgiveness, circle that, too many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation. But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we're guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful gift of grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Good news, isn't it, church? It's this work of the second Adam. Do you hear what's going on here? The fall of man is made right. No longer. Remember the picture we painted last week of Adam and Eve leaving the garden, heads down in shame. It's all made new now in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Well, first, in Christ, there's grace and forgiveness. In Christ, there's grace and forgiveness. Salvation is a free gift of God in Christ. In fact, I, I was very uh, intentional in titling the sermon this morning that we're restored by God in Christ. If you stop with God, you miss the point. You've got to run to his son, Jesus Christ. He is the one that dispenses grace and forgiveness. God in Christ has lavished us with grace. I had the, the opportunity a couple weeks ago to preach on um, preach at crew down at CNU. And I told this, so if you're here, this probably not too many college students here at this service, but if you're here this morning, you're from crew, I told this, so you're getting a repeat. But we looked at the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 20, and it's now become one of my favorite parables. But for years, I didn't understand. In fact, for years, I kind of pushed back against it. There were many years I did not like the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 20. And some of you will know this as I begin to tell it. It's a story Jesus tells. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. So he's kind of saying, this is what I'm about. This is what I'm doing. And then he goes on to tell the story. He says, there was a landowner 
who owned a vineyard, and early in the morning, he went out into the marketplace, and he recruited some people to work for him. And he found some people not working. He says, you come work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you a fair day's wage. And so these guys probably go out somewhere between 6 and 8 in the morning and begin working for this landowner. The landowner goes back into the marketplace at 9 o'clock. He finds some people that still don't have a job. He says, hey, you want to come work in my vineyard? They say, yeah. And he goes, I'll tell you what, at the end of the day, I'll pay you what's fair. That's what he says. And so these guys that start at 9, they're going to they're gonna work all day. They're not sure of their ways, but they know it's going to be fair. Then the, the, the landowner goes back at noon, and there's still some people without work. And he says, listen, you come on out and work the rest of the day, and at the end of the day, I'll pay you what's fair. Then the landowner goes back out at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, finds some people that still don't have a job, he says, listen, you come on out and work in my, in my vineyard, and at the end of the day, I'll pay you what's fair. Then the landowner goes back out at 5 o'clock. The day is almost over, and there's some people who still don't have a job. He says, listen, you come out and work in my vineyard. At the end of the day, I'll pay you what's fair. They come out. They work like an hour of the day. This is the story Jesus tells, parable. So the, the people, so then at the end of the day, the landowner tells his foreman, I want you to line them up in reverse order and pay them what I tell you. And so he lines them up in reverse order, and the ones that worked from five to six, one hour, they line up, and the foreman gives them a day's wages. Whoa. Pretty gracious, isn't it? Then the guys that worked at three come up, and guess what they get? Day's wages. The guys that started at noon come up. Guess what they get? A day's wages. Then the guys that work started at nine come up. Guess what they get? A day's wages. Then the guys that worked all day, 12-hour shift, what do you think is going through their mind? I'm getting more. I mean, if they, if the hourly guy, the guy who worked an hour gets a day, I'm probably going to get more. And guess what the foreman gives them? A day's wage. And they balk. They go, this isn't fair. And then Jesus, or the, form, or the landowner says, and re- kind of a representative of the kingdom of heaven, the landowner says, I can do what I want with my money. Didn't I promise you a day's wage? Yes, you promised. Didn't I fulfill my promise? Yes, you fulfilled your promise. And then Jesus kind of wraps up the story with like, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And for years, I looked at that story, and guess who I sided with? The guys that worked all day, I'm like, I don't think it sounds fair to me. I don't get it, you know? And for years, I didn't get it. And then one day, I was reading a commentary, and I, the light bulb went on. Whenever I heard that story, guess who I kind of, I, my soul kind of naturally gravitated to? I gravitated to the guy that worked all day, right? And I kind of think, yeah, that's kind of my life. Like, I've been a Christian for a long time, right? And I've been serving God all these years, you know? And some of y'all, that's your story. Like, you grew up that way, and like, you're kind of, you're kind of go gravitating towards the guy that worked all day. You're like, that's not fair. And then I read somebody that the light bulb went on. The only person who worked all day is Jesus Christ. I'm the one who came along at the last hour and God lavishly gives me a day's wage. Isn't that incredible? Church, I want you to be clear. Like, like the second Adam and his sin is annihilated under the person and work of Jesus Christ because of the grace of God. And God is going to lavish us with the same gifts and the same pay, if you will, that, he, that his son earned, we get. We work one hour of the day and we get lavish with the grace and mercy of God. Isn't that incredible? And that story has a whole new meaning to me. Now I identify with the guy that starts work at five o'clock, right? Just this short season called life. 
and I get blessed with the gifts and the grace of God earned for me in Christ for all eternity. Amazing. In Christ, there's grace and forgiveness. Grace and forgiveness freely given in Christ. Um, some of you are here this morning, and like every time the Holy Spirit begins to work in your heart, you're a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit begins to work in your heart, says, hey, listen, you need to step up into some ministry. You need to take some leadership. You need to, you need to be an apprentice in a small group so that, we can, so that we can double our small groups by this time next year, okay? Pastor Jeff just said we have 40, 40% in our small groups. It really needs to be this time, the, the two seasons, it really needs to be around 75 or 80%, okay? But the problem, you know why we don't have enough? We don't have enough small group leaders. That's our issue. And so we need some people to step up. But what happens is every time we begin to step up and take some leadership or take some vision or take some mission, the enemy gets in our heads for many of us in this room and says, you'll never amount to anything because if they only knew who you were. Church, whenever that comes up, let me tell you something. That's second Adam stuff. I mean, that's first Adam stuff. Second Adam is the one who's declared us righteous. Paul goes on to write in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, So now there is no what, church? There's no condemnation for those who are, belong to Jesus Christ. See, some, of you, some of you need to hear that promise this morning. Like, There's condemnation in your heart because of your past. Jesus hung on the cross. He said, it is what? Finished. What's finished? The, the, the penalty of sin is paid for on that, on that cross. There's no longer your head down in shame. Now our head is lifted because there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ because he offers grace and forgiveness, Paul says. The second thing he offers us is in Christ, there's triumph over sin and death. This horrible picture that I've painted for two and a half weeks is now defeated. You want to talk about the complete annihilation? The complete annihilation is, is in Jesus Christ. Adam and Eve put their heads down in shame. They walk out of the garden, but Christ lifts our eyes, and he says, I am taking you to a new heaven and a new earth. Paul can't contain himself in 1 Corinthians 15, which is what I preached on Easter Sunday. 1 Corinthians 15, 53. For our dying bodies, Paul says, must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in what, church? Like, it's not even close. It's six professional players defeating 200 people. Swallowed up and gone. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, Paul says, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your sting? It, for, the, for sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God who gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's triumph over death in Jesus Christ, church. But the progression, so we looked at the digression, but the progression goes forward. In Christ, there's right relationship with God. In Christ, there's right relationship with God. Paul goes on to say in Romans 5.18, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship, circle that, brings a right relationship with God, and circle this, a new life for everyone. 
right relationship and new life. And by the way, this is not universalism, okay? It's easy. A lot of people point this verse and say, see, everybody gets into heaven. That's what the Apostle Paul said. There's plenty of other verses. Paul talks about how we have to first bow a knee to the Lordship of Christ. Romans 10, 9, and 10 comes to mind, okay? This is a, a, a literary idea called parallelism, okay, where, he, where Paul is just comparing first Adam and second Adam, okay? And so the point here is that Adam and Eve walk out of the garden with their heads down. They're in shame. They're inauthentic. They leave paradise. But mankind is now in right relationship with God through the person and work of Christ. That's why Jesus said, in me, and you, when you know me, when you follow me, you get to snuggle up on the lap of God Almighty and say, Abba, Father, Daddy. Our, our pathway is made back to our heavenly Father. And in Christ, we are made whole. In Christ, there is new life. There's right relationship, Abba, Father, and there is new life in Christ. And I believe that means life here on earth has new meaning. When you worship the second Adam, life has new meaning. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, The thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy, but my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I like the older versions of the Bible there. They might have abundant life, right? Abundant life is, is a life with purpose. Abundant life is a life no longer just investing in this broken world where we pass it all on and death and decay wins. Abundant life is purpose and hope and joy and fulfillment, which leaves me asking the question this morning. Let me ask you the question. What really has the affections of your heart? What really has the affections of your heart? I mean, because if, if, you, if what really has the affections of your heart are things like this world and stuff, the Bible calls that stuff an idol. And that stuff will leave you wanting. But it is in Christ where we have right relationship with God and we have a new life. And we empty ourselves and pursue Christ, the second Adam. And then finally, here's the biggie. Finally, here's the biggie. In Christ, Paul says, there's eternal life. In Christ, there's eternal life. Romans chapter 5, verse 21. Paul finishes this section by saying, Just as sin ruled over all people and brought, the, uh, brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead. Isn't that great? I love that language giving us right standing with God, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's what he's saying. He's taking us back to what he always intended it to be. It's as intended. Our standing before God is restored as originally intended. In fact, he's taking us to a place that's even better than what Adam and Eve had. Adam and Eve lived in paradise with the ability to sin. We're going to a place where we, by the grace of God, will no longer have the ability to sin and fall ever again. Our standing in Christ in eternity future is better than the standing of Adam and Eve. Isn't that cool? That's our hope in the second Adam. And so in Christ, church, we're made authentic. You want to know what it means to be authentic? It means to bow a knee and be a worshiper of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we're authentic. Because you know why? Everything else is fake in it. 
Because in Christ, we have right standing with God. There's no more shame. In Christ, our past sins are forgiven. In Christ, our current sins are forgiven. In Christ, our future sins are forgiven. In Christ, we get to grow in righteousness. In Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we, we grow to love the things that God loves and we grow to detest the things that God hates. That's why if you're a believer, man, and you sin, what happens is there should be a, a moment, a time of grief in your heart. Man, God hates sin. He hates it so much, he crucified his son for my sin. And we grieve it, and then we move on. In Christ, I have nothing to hide. In Christ, I have nothing to hide from God. And quite frankly, I got nothing to hide from others. See, some of you here this morning, you're hiding. Let me tell you something. God already knows, okay? And so you think it's a big secret. It's not a secret to God. And the sin and the shame that you feel has been paid for on the cross. And when you bow a knee to the Lordship of Christ, the it is finished goes out for your sin. And the Bible says our sins are forgiven as far as the east is from the west. That's a long way. In Christ, I have nothing to hide. If you remember last week, I gave you the Webster definition of authentic. Remember? Webster said this, authentic means it's not an imitation. You are made real in Christ. Nothing to hide. Webster defined authentic as not as conforming to fact or reality. In Christ, you get to build your life on righteousness and truth. Webster defined authentic as being able to re reproduce essential features. In Christ, you get to reproduce the features of God in righteousness and holiness. I told you last week that the first three chapters of the Bible painted this really bleak picture of humanity. And then the rest of this book is the story of God pointing us to the second Adam. And then the Gospels is where the second Adam is revealed to us. And then the back end of the book is the so what now that the second Adam came. How do we live in community? And the final chapter, the final book of the Bible is reminding us of eternity future. And the, complete, the victory that began on the cross will find its completeness in the return of Jesus Christ when the second Adam returns. And the rest of this book points us towards the second Adam. You know, this past week, someone sent me a video. Laura Rogers sent me a video. It was a great summary of the first two weeks of this series, Authentic. This video is called True and Better. Watch this. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. 
There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac, the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. I want to encourage you this morning. If you are hoping in the things of this world, it is broken. There is a true and better Savior, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we, as your church body this morning, give you praise. Our applause is for our Savior, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Our applause is in thanksgiving to grace. Our applause is in thanksgiving to mercy, God, that we have received. Our applause, God, is in thanksgiving for a hope, an abundant life, joy and purpose in this life, and eyes forward to your return. Our applause, God, is an act of worship to you for your gracious gift of the second Adam, God's Son, Jesus Christ. We give you praise. We give you thanksgiving. We thank you for the opportunity to no longer live life in shame and brokenness and in hiding, but to live in a manner in Christ that's authentic. And we pursue our authenticity in our Savior, Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Church, this is our offering time. And uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, first of all, I want to say thank you so much for being here. And I want you to know we are not after your money. Um, this is just one of the ways we worship God and give thanks at Coastal. So, um, so don't feel any obligation to give as a guest. We'd love to have one thing from you on the side of that bulletin is a tear-off. And uh, if you would just fill that out, we want to send you a thank you card for coming.
Maybe you're here this morning, man, and you've been struck by the need to know God's son, Jesus Christ. Uh, I want you to know we have our prayer team members. Uh, they wear purple shirts, man. They sit up front. They would love to minister to you in prayer, love to explain to you how you can connect with the second Adam, uh, God's son, Jesus Christ, and they're here to minister to you. Joey, 